Since our initial release of Julius Jones' story, there have been some exciting new developments. This is a re-release of that story with brand new content, but before we reveal the newly discovered evidence and what it means for Julius Jones's wrongful conviction, we need to address the issue that's working its way through federal district court in Oklahoma right now. What I'm referring to, of course, is the case that has been to the U.S. Supreme Court that we discussed at length in our coverage of its leading plaintiff, Richard Glossop. If you would like a fuller understanding of why there has been a moratorium on executions in Oklahoma since 2015, We'll have Richard's story linked in this episode's bio. However, that case obviously directly affects everyone on death row in Oklahoma, including Julius Jones. What's at issue is that both pharma companies and foreign governments are part of a concerted effort to starve America and about nine other countries that still use the death penalty of the drugs that are used in lethal injections. The shortage of approved lethal injection drugs has led Oklahoma and other states to move forward with executions using substitute drugs for the approved ones in their state's protocol, a practice that has caused many botched executions. Now, since 2015, death row inmates have been fighting Oklahoma in court over the Eighth Amendment issue of whether these substitute drugs and the subsequent botched executions they cause constitute cruel and unusual punishment. In the case of Clayton Lockett, who writhed on the execution gurney for 43 full minutes, I'm going to go with, yes, it sure does. On August 11, 2021, a federal judge, Stephen Friot, in Oklahoma issued an opinion and said he wants to have a trial on whether the drugs Oklahoma plans to use in executions will cause a constitutionally unacceptable risk of pain. That trial will take place in early 2022. This drug issue is just more proof that we have no business and no right to continue executing people, just in case the innocence of men like Julius Jones wasn't already enough. On July 28, 1999, Paul Howell was shot twice in a driveway in Edmond, Oklahoma, in a robbery for his GMC Suburban. According to his sister, the shooter was an African-American male wearing a red bandana across his face and a stocking cap with up to an inch of hair sticking out from the bottom. According to numerous non-incentivized sworn affidavits, the co-defendant in this case, Chris Jordan, has since bragged about being the shooter and framing his former friend, Julius Jones. On the night of the shooting, Julius was at home with his family. The evening following the murder, Chris Jordan spent the night at the Joneses, which was when he said he hid the gun in a second-story crawl space. Confidential informants in the stolen car trade, including a longtime associate of Chris Jordan, Liddell King, deflected investigators toward Chris Jordan and Julius. Chris eventually gave seven statements riddled with inconsistencies, blaming Julius Jones for the murder. On July 30th, police searched at Jones's home and found the gun exactly where Chris Jordan is believed to have hidden it. With nothing presented to defend against the planted evidence and the incentivized testimony of Liddell King and Chris Jordan, Julius was sent to Oklahoma's death row. On this episode, we team up with one of Julius's fiercest advocates, Kim Kardashian, as we speak with his attorney, Dale Bache, and his mother and sister, Madeline and Antoinette Jones. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. 
I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billy's vocals. It was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da 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 da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Looking for hair removal tools that not only deliver smooth results, but also make you feel totally in control? Enter Conair Girl Bomb. They're like your secret weapons for smooth, sleek results, made just for us. From the ultimate girl bomb grip to the professional grade blades, say goodbye to settling for less. With Conair Girl Bomb, you get the precision and power that used to only be exclusive to men's tools. So take your hair removal routine to the next level with Conair Girl Bomb, available at Walgreens. Today we're here to talk about Julius Jones, who's been on death row in Oklahoma for over 20 years for a crime he didn't commit. And I'd like to welcome a very special guest. You'll recognize her name, and you'll recognize her from having been on this podcast before. Kim Kardashian West, welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Hi, thank you for having me again. I can't overstate the importance of you being here today with us, Kim, because if we don't take every possible action that we can, and I mean the audience too, Julius will be executed in Oklahoma as early as this fall for a crime we know he didn't commit. Kim, can you tell us when you first heard about this case? Yeah, I first started to receive letters. They were from a woman named Terry McCarthy, probably 30 letters from her. And she was kind of reiterating the same information about Julius and mentioned the documentary with Viola Davis. So I thought, I have to look into this. And I say this all the time because we have such an amazing group of people between you and Scott Budnick, my attorneys and everyone. When all of the big players really feel the same way about a case... I know that we have to be loud and I feel in my soul that we are early enough because an execution date for Julius hasn't been set yet that I just, I feel like now is the time where we all just have to come together and really make a difference in his life. What about this particular case, about his case, makes you so passionate and what sticks out to you the most about Julius's case? There's a few things. Being a young honor roll student, athlete, you have your whole life ahead of you. 
everyone around always says what an amazing person he is. They grew up with him, his coaches. And then to see getting caught up with the wrong group of people and getting set up the way he was just really rubbed me the wrong way that someone's life, a young kid's life, was just taken away. It always goes back to me thinking about what if that was my son? What would I do if my son got set up like this? So we got to fight for this guy. We got to help him get his life back. The next voice you hear is going to be the voice of Dale Bache, an assistant federal public defender who is definitely doing his part to help to unravel this nightmare. When did you get involved with it? In uh, 2016, our office was appointed to represent Julius in clemency proceedings. And this really is a terrible crime. I mean, you have Paul Howell, a 45-year-old church deacon and business owner, family guy, returning to his parents' home in the Oklahoma City suburb of Edmond from a school supply shopping trip with his seven- and nine-year-old daughters and his sister, Megan Toby, in the car. Now, as he was getting out of the 1997 GMC Suburban, a black man in a stocking cap with about an inch of hair sticking out from the bottom and a red bandana tied around his face stepped up to Paul and demanded the Suburban and fired his gun twice, mortally wounding Paul. As his daughters and sister ran Screaming to the house for cover, the gunman sped away in the Suburban. And from what we know now, and remember, this is in addition to what was known when we first released this episode, according to three men and counting, not just the original two. These are three men who all knew Chris Jordan in prison and or in jail. And none of these men have been incentivized in any way. Okay. And they've all sworn to have been told by Chris Jordan directly that Chris did this shooting and that his former friend, Julius Jones, was not involved. I mean, that's powerful stuff right there, okay? But at the time of this investigation, the cops went looking for the usual suspects in the stolen car trade. First, they went to a guy named Kermit Lottie. He led them to Liddell King, who was an associate of Chris Jordan, who then led them to Jordan and eventually Julius Jones. But the cops caught Chris Jordan first, right? So. Can you walk us through some of the things that Chris Jordan told them? Sure. On July 28th, 1999, according to Chris Jordan, who is the co-defendant in this case, he and Julius were driving around looking for a suburban to Jack. They spotted a car, followed it into a neighborhood, and according to Chris Jordan, Julius jumped out of the car when the car pulled into the driveway and shot Paul Howell. When Chris Jordan was taken into custody, that's what he told the police. And they immediately focused on Julius. Tunnel vision set in. But what we now know is Chris made seven different statements to the police, and those statements were inconsistent. And at one point, uh, the police say, what you're telling us, it's not adding up. We don't have this backwards, do we? So the police knew that there were problems with what Chris was telling them. 
but the police continue to focus on Julius. And something that really struck me when reading about this case is that according to the non-incentivized witnesses who knew Chris Jordan in jail, prison, or both, as well as to statements that Jordan himself later made to the police, Chris Jordan, on the night after the shooting, but before he was arrested and gave his initial statement, slept at the Joneses' home. Chris slept at the Joneses' home, which is where he said he stashed a murder weapon. So on its face, the gun being found at the Joneses looks damning for Julius at that time. But now, in hindsight, it just further points in the direction of Chris Jordan's culpability. Well, we know that when Chris was interviewed by the police, he was asked, so you hid the murder weapon? And he responded, yeah. Chris also told one of the men that he spoke to while in custody in the county jail that he wrapped the gun used to commit the murder and hid it in Julius's parents' house. We understand that Chris was sitting in a police car outside of Julius's house after the police stormed the home and then went looking for the gun and immediately went to where we think Chris told them the gun would be located. We also know that there were other people involved, namely Kermit Lottie and Liddell King, that had a lot to gain by pointing in Julius's direction and away from themselves. Can you tell us about Kermit and Liddell? Kermit Lottie was a man who ran a chop shop on the south side of Oklahoma City. And it was a well-known establishment in the trade of stealing cars. Liddell King was a close confidant of Kermit's and was known for his involvement in that trade. Liddell King was also a confidential informant. And in exchange for providing information to the police, he would be allowed to carry on with some of his illegal activities. At the time of Julius's trial, Liddell King was facing bogus check charges. And as a habitual offender, he was looking to 20 years. And in exchange for his testimony, He got 10 years probation. Liddell was one of the guys that pointed the finger at Julius. So this paints a pretty strong picture of a a, sort of a unit, right? You had uh, Chris Jordan, who was a troubled kid. You have these two other known criminals, particularly ensconced in the stolen car business. And then you have a car that gets stolen in a violent robbery, a tragic death. But we know a number of things that would make anyone go, well, wait. I mean, for instance, we know that the number of shell casings found at the scene was something that was known and volunteered by Chris in his interrogation before the police even asked or suggested it. We know that the witnesses were incentivized. We know that the description matches someone very much like Chris Jordan, who doesn't look like Julius. Megan Toby, Mr. Howell's sister, was in the car with him when he pulled into the driveway. And she testified that she saw the person who shot her brother. And she described him as African-American, wearing a red bandana across his face, wearing a black stocking cap, and half an inch of hair hanging out from under the cap. What's critical about that 
is Julius wore his hair close crop, very short. Chris Jordan, on the other hand, wore his hair in braids. And how do we know that Julius's hair was, was short? Ten days prior to Mr. Howell's murder, Julius got picked up on a traffic stop and had a mugshot taken. So there's an official government photo of Julius with short hair. And that photograph was never shown to the jury at trial. Uh, we also know that Julius was at home with his family at the time Mr. Howell was shot and killed. And later that evening, Chris and Julius were supposed to drive down to Norman, Oklahoma, which is about 20 minutes south of Oklahoma City. Julius was at home getting a little agitated because Chris said he would be there early in the evening. And Chris didn't show up until close to midnight. We also have with us Julius's sister, Antoinette, and his mother, Madeline. Now, here you have a son who is excelling in so many ways, uh, co-captain of three different sports teams in high school, uh, academic scholarship at Oklahoma University, great-looking young man uh, with his whole life laid out in front of him, and then everything takes a terrible, terrible turn. It's been a 20-plus year shock, and um, I really can't often find the words to explain what it's been like. We just got blindsided. It sure seems like you went from the American dream to the American nightmare. And let's go to that fateful night, July 28th, 1999. Can you tell us what was happening that night and, and why and how you know that Julius could not possibly have been there? Uh, that was a kind of a, a busy day for us. I was trying to do Antoinette's hair. I was fixing uh, spaghetti. But Julius was there all day long. They played Monopoly. There were a few of us playing Monopoly. Julius was there playing Monopoly. And my oldest brother, Antonio, and uh, another young man that was over there, they got mad at me because I gave Julius all my money and property. I had to do that because I had to get my hair done. So it's specific things like that. Like I know that it was around Julius' birthday. Julius' friend had a big chocolate chip cookie that she gave to him for his birthday. Tony kept going in and out of the refrigerator to take pieces of the cookie. And later on that day, my brother Antonio had to go to work. My mother went to go take him to work. Julius looks in the refrigerator and he's like, oh my goodness. He was like, who ate my cookie? And I kid you not, he waited at the back door in the kitchen pacing back and forth, waiting for mom to come home so he could tell that somebody ate his cookie. So I, I kind of was like, well, you know, I was like, Tony ate your cookie. And so I'll never forget that day. So it doesn't seem like someone who just murdered somebody would be particularly concerned over how much of a cookie was left in the refrigerator or not. Um, I mean, that's just one of many, many things, you know. So July 28th, he's home with you. Sounds like sort of a typical family night. But then things changed dramatically in the next 36 hours, right? The 29th, Chris is at your home, right? He spent the night that night, which is when he had the opportunity to plant the gun. Do you recall Chris being at your house that night? Thursday uh, was trash day. And uh, Jews usually takes my trash out. And sometimes we sit and talk on the walkway. But uh, Chris was kind of like a shadow was there. Antoinette, were you there that night? Do you remember if Chris was at the house? I know 
Chris was there because I heard them come upstairs and go into the room that was Julius's. The very next day, the police would surround the Joneses' house. Julius' family was perp-walked out of their own home, and Chris Jordan would be in a police car out front to tell them exactly where the murder weapon was hidden. Julius was appointed a good attorney, Mr. Barry Albert, who was known for his skill and unorthodox but effective courtroom style, but Mr. Albert, he died shortly before the trial, leaving his new public defenders woefully unprepared, so much so that they didn't put on any defense whatsoever. Uh, When it came time for Julius to present his case, the lawyer simply stood up and said, the defense rests. The lawyers did not put on testimony from the family who would have presented an alibi. The lawyers did not investigate and present evidence from two people who were in jail who didn't know each other and independently came forward and said that Chris Jordan told them that he set Julius up. He told one of the men that he planted the weapon in Julius's house. And he told both of the men that he would be getting out of prison after serving a 15-year sentence in exchange for his testimony against Julius. The inconsistent statements that Chris made to the police during his interrogation were never explored by the defense when they had an opportunity to cross-examine Chris. It's an inexplicable lapse. In fact, it's totally understandable why the jury would have voted to convict. They didn't have any information to work with except what the state was saying. What was it like uh, seeing your your baby going through this trial? Well, at the beginning, I was very confident because the attorney that we had, Mr. Albert, he was very thorough and he talked to us and he said, I just need to get Chris on the stand. Mr. Albert had a plan. Before he passed away, the opponent attorneys, they wanted more time. And then after he passed away, then they wanted to immediately start up with the trial and everything. And we were there every day. But one of the excuses after Mr. Albert had passed, they said the reason they didn't call us on the stand until after they had sentenced Julius because uh, they didn't know we were there. It was just a mockery. I was devastated. I was devastated when I heard the word we rest. I think I was a little older than 13 then. I, I didn't understand how you couldn't put people on the stand to help my brother's defense. There was no defense there. And that, I mean, that just, that, that pisses me off. This episode is underwritten by Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton, and Garrison, a leading international law firm. Paul Weiss has long had an unwavering commitment to providing impactful pro bono legal assistance to the most vulnerable members of our society and in support of the public interest, including extensive work in the criminal justice area. It infuriates me to hear when cases, when there's ineffective counsel, it just makes me so mad, especially if it's an appointed attorney, that you think that if you don't have the money to afford an attorney and so you're getting appointed one, that 
they're going to be ineffective and not help, but actually hurt your case so much. I mean, I don't know how I could live with myself if I was an attorney like that. But I think especially with Julius's case, he just didn't get a fair trial, bottom line. As we've heard, at Julius's trial, the defense didn't even give the jury much information to work with. But believe it or not, it gets even worse. During the trial in the jury room, one of the jurors said out loud, why are we wasting our time here? We ought to just take that N out back and bury him outside the jail. And one of the jurors approached a bailiff, told him what she heard and asked to talk to the judge. On the record, the judge sort of dismissed it as, well, he could have been talking about Osama bin Laden. We don't know who the juror was talking about. Take the N-word out of the equation. You still have a juror who made up his mind and was going to convict Julius and sentence him to death. Throw the N-word in there, and the racism is, is just oozing from this case. We also know that between 1995 and 2012, there was a study conducted in Oklahoma on race and the death penalty. The authors concluded that an African-American male who is convicted of killing a white male is three times more likely to get the death penalty in Oklahoma. So at trial, you had racism, incentivized lying witnesses, and no defense whatsoever. So Dale, when you took on this case, you guys had your work cut out for you to say the least. But there was a new law in place in Oklahoma that allowed you to do DNA testing in post-conviction. So you tested the red bandana, right? It was sitting in, in evidence for almost uh, 20 years. Dr. Shapiro, he used to be with the Department of Forensic Biology at the Medical Examiner's Office in, in New York City, reviewed the DNA report that was produced by Bodie Selmark and came to some conclusions. So one of the things that Megan Toby, the victim's sister, testified to was that the shooter yelled something at her as she was running away. And we identified a stain on the bandana. And we wanted to check if that stain was saliva. And it came back negative as to saliva. So we don't even know if that bandana was the same bandana that the assailant wore because there's not the saliva stain on it that should be there because the assailant yelled. Don't, don't forget, this was July in Oklahoma, right? So it, you do have to suspend a lot of disbelief to come up with the conclusion that someone, Julius or anyone, is going to be in a, an extremely high-pressure situation on a very hot day and not sweat or breathe into the bandana that they're supposedly wearing on their face. We don't know, we'll never know whether the gun was wrapped in the bandana or whether the gun was taken and placed in the bandana by the authorities when they were taking it out. One would hope they would put it in an evidence bag instead. But the state made a big deal about the fact that there were several different people's DNA on this bandana and that one of the people 
uh, seems to be somewhat consistent with Julius. Can you elaborate on on what that really means? Because so, some people would look at that and go, oh, wait a minute, then, you know, <laughs> I guess they got the right guy after all. Right. Case closed. But the testing indicates that the DNA was degraded and was defined as trace DNA, which suggests that the DNA could have been transferred to the item. So the bandana is found in Julius's house. It's handled by the police. It's in his bedroom. It's very possible that any DNA on there that could be consistent with Julius's could come about as a result of the transfer of the DNA. So here's what we're faced with, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of these fronts. Julius didn't match the eyewitness description. His hair was short and could never have stuck out from a stocking cap, but Chris Jordan's absolutely could have. Chris Jordan gave a confession that was riddled with inconsistencies and falsehoods. He changed his story numerous times. Chris also admitted to planting the gun exactly where the police found it in Julius's house on more than one occasion. There's no salivary DNA on the bandana in evidence, and it doesn't seem to be the one that was worn across the shooters or anyone's face anyway. And I'm leaving out other exculpatory stuff. Forget the incompetent defense, forget the racial bias, forget the jury, forget everything. Those facts alone would seem to be enough to unravel this. And then you add to it that the only thing connecting him to it are the words of two highly incentivized witnesses, both of whom happen to be career criminals, who were making an offer they almost couldn't refuse. I mean, they were given a an offer that they would be able to avoid lengthy prison sentences of their own in exchange for their testimony against Julius. Does that pretty much sum it up? That's it. And one would think that, you know, why is Julius even in prison, let alone on death row? But that's not how it turned out. This leads to my next question, Kim. His only contact to the outside world is through letters. Have you gotten letters directly from him or have you corresponded with him in any way? I have. Yes. You know, just hearing what he has to say. And I mean, what I can't understand, but I'm so grateful for is someone in Julius's situation who could just be so angry at the world. And I I don't, I don't know how I would act if I was in his situation, but to see the grace that he has and to see how he's fighting through this and won't give up, it inspires me. So I, I want to fight. Like, I, I, we need him to get out. I mean, just to even know that because he was an athlete, to see a lot of athletes support him and write letters on his behalf now to send to the governor has been so amazing to see, you know, when he was playing ball, um, Blake Griffin's dad was his coach and is completely in support of Julius. And Blake Griffin wrote an amazing heartfelt letter for the governor to see in support of Julius's release. Russell Westbrook, there's been some amazing people that really want to see him released as well. People that grew up there, people that played there, Carmelo Anthony, who played in Oklahoma for a little while. His wife is my best friend. You know, I sent him all the facts and he wrote a letter as well. It's amazing to see the support that has come together. And I hope that everyone 
really pays attention before it's too late because we will not go out easy on this one. And we know that the governor of Oklahoma is a a guy who cares um, about criminal justice reform. He's done some uh, positive things for sure. It would be hard to imagine that he and the members of the parole board wouldn't be moved to take action here. Between the outcry in the public, the support of prominent people, faith leaders, business leaders, so many different people, and the facts of the case cry out for justice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, everyone always asks me, like, well, what can we do? And I think the most important thing to do is call the governor's office and elected officials that can really make a difference and just be really loud. And you should go to justiceforjuliusjones.com. First of all, look into his case. Everything is on this website from the documentary, The Last Defense with Viola Davis, to where you can sign the petition in favor of Julius. And you can also subscribe to stay up to date on what's going on. And it even gives you a link to email the parole board. I do believe that the parole board is like in favor of reform. I believe everyone is very compassionate from what I've heard. So I just urge everyone, please sign the petition for Julius Jones if you're moved by his story. I've done it. I believe in him so much. I believe in his innocence. Justiceforjuliusjones.com. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents... A new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. 
Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Hey guys, LeVar Arrington here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck, like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design. The Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before or check out the fully redesigned tacoma delivering trail dominating power and captivating style the new tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true and with new available tech this legendary truck is getting even better and when you buy a toyota truck you buy toyota dependability meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future so visit your local toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com toyota let's go places when we initially released this episode as you heard mentioned several times throughout there were two witnesses who had been in jail with chris jordan and they are manuel little john and christopher berry now since then there's been a third man now mind you only the state can incentivize a witness. Everybody knows this, right? It's totally illegal for anyone but the state to bribe a witness. So these men have nothing to gain by coming forward. In fact, they have a lot to lose. Here's what Manuel Littlejohn said in his 2004 sworn affidavit. Quote, Jordan stated that he felt guilty because he was going to implicate his co-defendant Julius Jones in a murder case to avoid getting the death penalty for himself. That's end quote. In Little John's affidavit, after admitting to hiding the gun in the Joneses' home, Jordan stated to Little John, quote, Julius didn't do it, and, quote, Julius wasn't there. Then Christopher Berry, in his 2004 sworn affidavit, referring to what Chris Jordan had told him, quote, he was the actual person who shot the victim in his case. Mr. Jordan also said, I'm still quoting, that because he was the first person to talk to police, he was getting a deal and would not get the death penalty, end quote. And finally, in March of 2021, we have a sworn affidavit from Roderick Wesley, and he says the following on video about his interaction with Chris Jordan. Me and uh, Jordan had worked together. One day we sitting there, and I'm telling him about my situation. He pretty much told me about his. I guess you could say he was being sort of remorseful, but... It was one of the cases where I'm sorry, but I'm not going to jump out there and just, you know, throw myself to the wolves like that. And so when he ended up breaking it down, it was pretty much like, you know, yeah, I committed the act that somebody else is getting accused of. You know, he admitted that he won, you know, did kill him, and it wasn't this guy. You know, it was a big decision is do I jump out there or what, but I looked at it as, if it was my situation, I would want somebody who has information to go ahead and do that because this is man life online. 
I mean, what could I possibly add to further prove what we've been all saying all along? Julius Jones is an innocent man on death row in Oklahoma. Since almost 7 million people have signed a petition on Julius' behalf, bankers' boxes of signatures were delivered to the Oklahoma Board of Pardons and Parole, begging for justice in this case. And now, since this latest statement from Roderick Wesley, Julius has been granted a hearing. It's a stage two commutation hearing in front of the Oklahoma Board of Pardons and Parole, and it's happening on September 13, 2021. But that doesn't mean it's time to rest or relax. Now is the time to ramp up the pressure. If you'd like to add your name to that petition, it's going to be linked in the bio. Please help us keep the pressure on. And with that, we're going to go to closing arguments where, of course, first of all, I thank all of you. And now we're going to hear from Dale, Antoinette, and of course, Julius's mother, Madeline. But let's kick it off with you first, Kim. Oh, thank you for having me on here. And thank you for everything that you do and for showing me the way. Seriously, I look up to you so much. And I'm so grateful to you for sharing so many cases with me and that we're able to hopefully open up people's minds and hearts that might have been a little bit closed off when it comes to reform or might not understood how they could help. And then we're giving them a platform where they can help out and be a part of the conversation and help fight for people that really, really deserve it. So thank you. Dale, um, you've done a fantastic job, and I appreciate you making the time. I know it's going to make a difference. Well, thank you, Jason. We have a commutation application pending before the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board. Julius is thankful for all the support, the prayers, the letters that he has received. That is giving him strength. Uh, This case got the attention it deserved when Viola Davis and Julius Tenen produced The Last Defense. That put light on this injustice and wrongful conviction. What's troubling to me, and we should all be concerned about this, is that without The Last Defense, no one would be interested in this case. Julius would have been just another African-American man in prison saying he was innocent, one of the 4% and no one would care. There are thousands of Juliuses behind bars today, and people should care. And we know you care, Jason, and we appreciate that. The struggle isn't over. Thank you very much. Uh, Why don't we save mom for last? Because, you know, she's mom. So, Antoinette, over to you. So first I would say that my brother Julius Darius Jones, he did not kill Paul Howe. My brother is a human being. He is not a number. When we consider people human beings and not just numbers, and we really take into account all the facts, I'm not just asking them to correct this wrong. I'm asking you to look at all of the key points in this case. I'm asking you to understand that my brother never got a fair defense. He never got a proper defense. He never got a juror of his peers. He never got a chance to voice what happened to from his side? And I'm, I'm just asking you as a human being to understand and take my brother in consideration as a human being and not a number. He is not a person that will take a life. He is a person that will protect a life. He is a person that cares about everybody's well-being. To this day, he cares. He cares more about how everybody else is doing 
than how he's doing inside. That's who my brother is. He's a person that cares. He's a loyal person. He is a person that loves life. I never gave up, and I, I'm still not going to give up. We shall not give up. We shall not rest. Even though the defense rests for him, we shall not rest. Thank you. Thank you. And now for the final words, Madeline. Uh, first of all, Julius is a good person. He's very kind. He's loving, compassion. And a lot of times he will hurt himself to keep from hurting someone else. And that's the reason he's in the predicament he's in now. And um, I just want to say to the parole board that one size does not fit all and that I would like for them to take careful consideration concerning Julius and to look at what he will be able to contribute to society if they spare his life. We just need to try to get things right because when justice is covered up, it stays covered for so long, but it'll either burn through or it will grow. And right now, I feel like that justice is is growing because uh, it wants to be heard and it wants to be fulfilled what it's really meant to be, justice for all, not just for some of us. And, you know, freedom is worth more than money. My biggest joy is to have my son home and to be about the things that he's dreamed and longed to want to do. And I thank God for this opportunity today to be able to express so many things that I've held in today. I really thank God for you, Jason. I I thank God for people like you. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Please support your local Innocence Projects and go to the link in our bio to see how you can help. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis. The music on the show, as always, is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's like very of all slow. The, of all the options. In spite of me. <laughs> like, what did we do? It's so slow. Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. 
Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free 